Here's a sneak peek of what we have today. So I think like if you have the hustle, like you'll find a place where like you will fit quite well. You would take on a risk to start something from scratch. I think it really goes to show that no matter where you go, whether you're going rural or, you know, staying somewhere urban, you really have to do your homework. Do you guys know how much DSOs affect policy and operations of a dental clinic? There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. Okay, so welcome back to the business of drilling. We're really excited to bring you this episode today. We're going to do a recap of what we've been talking about, and we have special guests, uh, the rest of the Debbie team. So Nima L, Nima N, Bob, welcome, Bob, welcome back. You've had a episode with us with Orshani, so I guess I'll open up with you. How does it feel? Uh, how does it feel to listen to the podcast? Honestly, like it's been a really good experience. In some ways, it's a little bit uh, being on this side's a little bit awkward because like hearing yourself on the actual episode. You get like a little self-conscious and and such, but it's been a pretty good experience. Yeah. And then Nima L, you've been doing all the backend stuff for the media, social medias and stuff like that. How how's that been going? How how you you uh you finding that you're getting a lot of engagement? Well, uh it's uh it's a teamwork and it's kind of fun to, you know, take part of it. And at the same time, because I'm kind of like a the person for, you know, contact from social media and stuff, when we get that, you know positive feedback. That's a great feeling. But again, shout out to you guys, the podcast team. You've been, a, you've been great. <laughs> and then Nima N, El Presidente of Debbie. How's, how's it going, my man? Going well, man. It makes me makes me happy to see what you guys are doing with this podcast. It's been lots of fun. We've been hearing a lot. You're a celebrity now around the school. <laughs> uh, all of you guys, I hear about everyone talking about the podcast, the luxury, Vlad Christian, like we love the podcast. So it's hyped to be on it. I'm really excited. It's been pretty cool reception so far. Obviously, you know, like we're always looking for feedback and ways to improve. Um, but it's been cool hearing, you know, different people reach out. Like we've had people reach out from UFT, but the purpose of all of it, what, right, was to, um, really just kind of learn, learn for ourselves and then record the discussions and put it out there. So that's been cool. I think we've learned quite a bit. Jerry, Christian, how are you guys doing? I'm good. I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm happy to be back for another podcast. I'm also doing good. Also happy to be here. It's exciting to have everyone here. I'm kind of interested to see how it plays out with the six of us. I I think you'll be, I think you'll be good. I think it'll be a good episode. So we're going to recap what we've been talking about so far. All right. And we're going to start with going rural. So what's everyone's opinion on going rural? What was your opinion going into dental school? Has it changed and has it any like taken any shape? Has the conversation with CEPI molded it in any way? I have never had the experience, to, you know, in living in a, you know, smaller city or rural area. I was always, you know, born and raised and lived in bigger cities. But oh boy, like after talking to her, you know, listening to her wisdom during the podcast, it definitely changed my mind. And, you know, Vlad, we have always had this conversation. You were a huge fan of, you know, going rural. Absolutely. So it was, it was definitely an eye-opening episode. I loved it. And, you know, Seppi, of course, is a fantastic guest. It was, it was really great, you know, listening to her. And also, again, shout out to her for being our first guest, right? Yeah. It's kind of a big toll to put on someone and be like, oh, hey, <laughs> want to record a podcast with us? Oh, by the way, you're going to set the precedent. <laughs> Did we tell her she's going to be the first one? I think, I think so. 
I think we kind of she definitely knew. After. She she was waiting. She, she was waiting for it to re- release. But um, no, I, think I think after the sure we told her she was gonna. I think after. Yeah, I think after the podcast. Yeah, we, we didn't want to freak her out, right? We stopped recording, and then uh, we're like, actually, you're uh, you're the first one. So, because she asked us where where can she find the podcast, and we're like, uh, we have to set that up. <laughs> <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> every major platform (laughs) but to be honest i think uh i think her as a first kickoff episode was really really good because i feel like she answered like so many questions that like everyday dental students have in their mind like all the time was like income was location like what you can expect to translate from school what may not translate um so yeah like i thought hers was like a great baseline to start off with yeah i agree it was a really insightful episode. I, I was honestly, I was kind of blown away because it, it's different, you know, thinking of rural going into dental school, right? Like in my mind, I'm like, okay, you're in the middle of nowhere, right? You don't like, you have like one general shop kind of thing. Um, and you don't really think about where we're at right now in terms of technology and like the infrastructure that supports these cities as well. And it starts to become a lot more accessible looking when, um, when you kind of factor in a lot of different principles. And one of the things that really stuck with me with Seppi was the fact that she worked in Bozizer, Manitoba, right? Which is an hour and a bit outside of Winnipeg. And she actually lived in Winnipeg, right? So she didn't live in a rural town or anything. She just commuted, right? And people might argue, okay, yeah, commuting for an hour or so like every day, like that, that's, you know, it goes, adds up, racks up kilometers, racks up time, right? That's two hours a day of just driving. But she was also saying, you know, like you, you could, really just fly out on the weekends if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to take a Friday off and have a long weekend, you could do that because you also kind of have the extra bit of income from just being rural in the first place. Right. And so that really opened up my mind because I used to think that it was either urban or rural. I didn't think it was a spectrum. I don't, I know that sounds silly, but I honestly thought that you need to either go A or B and not like somewhere in the middle, right? Which is kind of cool. And that's really expanded my search as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm someone that really wants to go rural. Like I think like going rural is a great uh, um, is a great idea for new grads, especially with the situation of like dental care and oral care in, in both the US and Canada. So you can really kind of take your pick as where you want to go. That's a great point. And, and what you're saying about new grads is, um, is very true. And that's something that Seppi actually opened my eyes to. I never thought about uh, going rural um, as opposed to kind of getting more formal training after graduation. But from what she was saying, you get so much more hands-on experience and you get to do uh, a greater variety of things. So you end up learning a lot more. and, And that's a wonderful idea for someone coming out of dental school. And I never thought of it as um, an option compared, comparing to, uh, going into a more formal setting for, for, for additional training, but it's a, it's, it is a great option and a a great idea. I think for people that want more experience. One other thing that I think it was very special about Seppi's episode was that I'm quite sure a lot of our audience are, you know, maybe considering specializing in a, you know, peculiar field in dentistry. And the fact that she actually went out there, she practiced general dentistry for, I think right now it, it will add up to two years. And in a few months, she's going back to start her three-year residency as an orthodontics resident. It's again, it's a fantastic perspective to have about what options are out there, whether you want to pursue general dentistry for the rest of your life or whether you want to go back to school. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And th- those two those two points are actually really important too because you know, for me personally, right? In my mind, I was thinking I need to do a GPR after school, right? That was like the big debate. And I think we flip-flopped between that episode quite a bit. I, I kept saying that like I, hey, I wanted to do a GPR, or I don't want to do a GPR, right? Um and it's not the first time that I've been told that you can get quite a bit of experience under a good mentor and people have told me you'll learn more under a good mentor uh, than doing a GPR, right? Now, obviously, you know, it depends on where you want to go. If you're more surgically inclined, right? You you know, you don't really want to start your surgical training under a mentor under no specific guidance or whatever, right? Like you want to be in an institution, things like that. But if you're kind of in my boat where you don't really know where you want to go with your career just yet, right? You kind of like general dentistry, you know, I think rural dentistry, especially with its perks of being, you know, fully digitized in a lot of these offices, because they have a lot of spending capital and they have a lot of uh, sort of cash flow to work with to improve the practice, right? Sounds like a really good option. Um, so yeah, that got me really excited. But I was I was wondering, did, has anyone has anyone been flipping flopping between uh, GPRs and non-GPRs here? 100%. Yeah, I remember we've had this conversation on and off so many times about whether, whether we do a GPR, whether we go straight into practice. I think uh, one of the things kind of going off what you just said, Vlad, uh, one of the things that about Seppi's episode, which also kind of struggled with me was like, was I guess kind of like her hustle in fourth year. Like for me personally, like initially I was kind of inclined more to do like a GPR because I, I think that maybe finding like a really, really good mentor first year out is maybe a little bit of a pipe dream. But she said like, you know, if you do all like she traveled a whole bunch of places, interviewed at a whole, a whole bunch of places, shadowed there. So I think like if you have the hustle, like you'll find a place where like you will fit quite well. So I think that was something like, you know, you could you could do a good amount of uh, prep to try to get a good GPR, but doesn't mean you can't do the same to get a good job right after. Right. And I think that that's that's what's kind of like special about a, G, uh, a mentorship versus GPR is that. Um, you can kind of through these kind of interviewing experiences, you get to pick in some sense what kind of mentorship you do so your training becomes kind of customized to your interest which is different from what a gpr would be which i think is more standardized so i think that's at least one element for why people find mentorship more valuable yeah that, that's actually huge too and uh, bob you 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 touched on this right but seppi did a lot of work to get her position like she didn't just you know apply on indeed and get a job right away kind of thing. like she she put in the hours like she said she talked to her pet Patterson reps, she went out to these practices, she looked at the schedules, right? And she kind of verified for herself being like, hey, is this worth my time to go do? Which I think is very, very important, right? But hey, like, listen, you're deciding your career, why wouldn't you put in this amount of effort, right? So it's kind of cool. It really gives you gives you a bit of hope um, in terms of, you know, finding a really good employment right after school, because she did touch on another note, which kind of freaked me out, okay? Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but she was talking about a an application to an associateship position in Mississauga, right? With like 300 applicants. That's crazy. Can you imagine competing against 300 dental, like dentists, graduated dentists, right? For, for an associateship in Mississauga where the hours are like, they're not the greatest. Like you're not working nine to five Monday to Thursday kind of thing, right? Like they're probably going to be shift hours too. So you're working like 12 to eight, you know, a lot of these positions that I'm seeing in Toronto, like you work on weekends, Saturdays, things like that. What's your guys' opinion on that? Like, do you, do you really see this going anywhere? It depends. It depends what's going on in your life. Like I know some people that are unwilling to go rural. Uh, I think most people can agree. You'll probably learn more 
Um, if you go rural, um, maybe you might have, uh, like, it seems to be that the mentorship is, is slightly better, but it completely depends on the person. Um, you're gonna do more um, procedures and so on, but it, it, it honestly just d depends what you wanna do. I know some people that are unwilling to go to rural areas. They, they have uh, families really important to them and they don't wanna leave for six months or a year or two years. Um, they might have a significant other, they might have other projects that they're working on. Um, like for example, Vlad, you said you're working on a bunch of these side projects, like a uh, marketing project, or maybe you're starting your own company. Um, it, it, it's sometimes it just doesn't make sense to go rural, which is completely fair. Um, in the same sense that, 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 that would be the same thing for the GPR, like a GPR, if you don't get, if you get in somewhere else other than your hometown, it's going to have the same, the same problem. So it, it completely depends where you want, you are in your life. Depends on the person. Like personally, I would want to go rural, but then it, I don't know. There's so many factors. You have to wait a couple of years, see where you're at, see what you want to do. I don't even know if half, half of us don't even know if you want to specialize or not. So it, it depends. And GPR is really good for, I heard that for everyone said that GPR is really good if you want to specialize. Like everyone said, like do a GPR if you're going to specialize. So I think it really goes to show that no matter where you go, whether you're going rural or, you know, staying somewhere urban, you really have to do your homework. Um, because something that's interesting about Seppi is that she didn't know that she wanted to specialize when she was in dental school. Um, that's something that she kind of figured out through her experience of having a really great mentor and getting the opportunity to do a lot more versatile dentistry when she had first graduated. And I thought that was pretty cool because sometimes we think that we have to make all of our decisions uh, now or in dental school in regards to our career, but the doors are always open if we want them to be. We just have to make sure that we're setting ourselves up so that we're around people that are um, motivated and have our best interests in mind in, in that sense. So um, I agree with you, Christian, like you don't have, have to go rural, but I think it's important to do your homework no matter where you go and, and make sure that you're going to be in an environment where you can grow. If you have, if you have a good mentor here and, they, and you know, they're going to set you up with a job or they're going to help you find connections, then, then why not? It sounds like an amazing deal. Like you, you're where you want to be. Um, you know, they have a great mentor. You're going to learn the stuff that you want to learn um and and so on so it, it honestly just depends i know some people that, that that that'll graduate and they'll have like very few mentors because they decide not to um like to enjoy their time in in dental school without networking i mean you can do both but they decide they, they don't they don't network a lot in dental school so it, it, it honestly depends how, how uh, where your mindset's at and plus, yeah, absolutely. Um, she she was full throttle on. She seemed to be full throttle on general practice. Like she didn't even want to specialize at, at all. And then I guess when she got there, until after her year, honest, <laughs> and and then she's like, "This is what I want to do." Yeah, for sure. And and you know, I really liked that she touched on her other like. She, she didn't specifically like, like single out any of her classmates or anything like that. Right. But she touched on the experience of her other classmates that stayed in Ontario and kind of what seemed like a saving grace was, you know, she didn't say, yeah, like they were all screwed or whatever, like working in Toronto sucks. Like, no, like she, she actually, you know, explained that, Hey, like I have friends that are very, like are doing very well. Like they're very successful and they stayed in Ontario. They stayed in London or, you know, they worked out in Brantford or Toronto or whatever. So it's still possible. Right. And I think that's an excellent point. Like it, it all depends on, you know, 
who you know, how you can establish yourself. If you have a good sort of flow into a practice where a mentor is willing to, you know, let you explore and develop as a clinician. Point that kind of comes to mind when it comes to differentiating between going straight to practice and finding a good mentor versus doing a GPR, in my opinion, is that, and it kind of goes back to why we started Debbie, is that GPR, even though it's clinically very, uh, you know, it's very excellent and it teaches you a lot, but I think it's maybe too academically focused. But if you're some, some, someone that is looking to uh, maybe one day opening up your own practice, maybe going out there and experiencing the year or two under a good mentor who owns their own practice and learn about the practice management, the business side of dentistry, that could definitely be a good bonus to it. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about Dr. Shervin Roshani. Uh, this guy has been awesome, right? Like he's been working with Debbie. He's been supporting us quite a bit. Uh, he's just willingly coming to talks, giving us seminars. And of course he recorded a podcast episode with, uh, with us. So Bob, you were on the podcast with me uh, to record for Roshani. Um, what was your opinion? How did you like that episode? Any kind of points that uh, stuck Dude, out honestly, to you? Like, I would say I love Dr. Roshani. He's, he's like, the perfect embodiment of like the entrepreneurial spirit. Like if he wasn't a dentist, he'd be an entrepreneur of, of some sort. Um, and one thing that I think really gets, uh, that really stuck out, stuck out to me about Roshani was like, he, he kind of kept it going like throughout his entire life. Like that podcast recording was actually like a, like a three hour recording where we talked about like, like, like finances and like other things in life. The biggest thing that kind of taught me that was like dentistry is like super flexible he said like after like starting four or five practices, like he just wasn't interested in, in like starting like another one after. And he'd rather like, you know, start another like side business kind of thing. But I think that Dr. Roshani, he, he's probably like the great uh, balance between like having an entrepreneur and having like a really, really good mentor. And I think like one thing that he really kind of told us after, he's like, I really wish we had something like this when we were starting out. And we've gotten that feedback like across the board from the, the professionals we've worked with. Um, so yeah, I, I thought he was a great guest. Yeah, like he, he was a cool person to talk to. I I so just to kind of recap his story, right? Like this guy graduated dental school and went into an executive MBA from UFT right away. So this guy is very business driven, right? And he bought practices right off the bat after doing like 10 associateship positions, which was kind of insane to hear. Like in, in like a year and a half, he did 10 associateship positions and I, you know, I'm, I'm, the stats might be off on that, but um, he, he said, like, it's really important to get a bunch of experience, which is the first kind of note, right? I mean, like, when do you know you're ready to buy a practice, right? And this came up in the later episode with Sina, which we'll get to, but Roshani kind of embodied the, the, the concept of making sure that you're able to sustain your practice workflow before you get into practice ownership. Right. And I've heard this quite a number of times on different podcasts, uh, different forum discussions. Right. People think that, OK, I can buy a practice that's, you know, that cash flowing at like, you know, 800, 900,000 or whatever <clears throat> over a million. OK, can you do enough dentistry to support that cash flow or are you going to tank the practice for a bit while you learn? Right. Um, so I think that was a really interesting perspective. And, you know, it's, it's kind of it's interesting to see someone that's so like you said, Bob, such, such a entrepreneurial hustle mindset, still being like, no, pump the brakes, like see what you can do. Right. And then he was explaining that with his accountant, like his accountant told him like, yeah, okay, I think you, you can pretty much sustain a practice like this, um, which I think is very, very important because 
I fell into this fallacy of thinking for a bit that I will just buy a practice right out of school, right? And that's kind of why I was teeter-tottering between a GPR and not. Um, that was the first sort of inclination. Like I wanted to be um, savvy in basically all clinical aspects of dentistry before I buy a practice. And I thought that I could do that after a GPR, right? And so that's something that's changed my mindset um, of, you know, on top of the fact that people are arguing against GPRs. Now, Roshani's saying, you know, go work in the real world, go see what it's like, see see if you can keep up with the pace before you actually make any decisions, which I thought was pretty interesting. Is anyone, so is, is everyone here kind of inclined towards practice ownership or are there any people that want to stay away from it? I mean, yeah, I think practice ownership is definitely interesting. Um, it does, it does make sense definitely to make sure that you're ready first though. I mean, um, Sherman really uh, did make that kind of apparent because I also always used to think like right after graduation, I want to get into it, but it really doesn't make sense because on top of the learning curve of learning how to manage that practice and figuring all those things out, um, trying to keep up with the patient flow is a lot. And um, I don't know, I don't know really, and maybe you guys can share your thoughts on this, but I don't know how smart it is to kind of buy into a practice and right away as you're new, also bring in an associate or something like that, because maybe you're not even ready yourself to be able to lead the associate and lead the team and get stuff going the way you want it to go. So it seems like kind of more of a catastrophic situation than a good one. I think everyone, I think everyone's like, not everyone, but a lot of people are in a rush. Like they're like, okay, I'm eager. Um, I want to start my own business. I want to start my own clinic either for, uh, from scratch or buy it off someone and uh, get ready to go. What, what I don't really, I don't really see that as a great option because how do you know what you want unless you, you um, go, go around, see other dental clinics, see how they function. How do you know a good one from a bad one? Like there's some, probably some stuff that you, you see from shadowing or from being an associate that you wouldn't know unless you're there for, for a few weeks. You're like, this is not what I, what I want in my practice. So um, yeah, taking, taking a year, two years, three years, five years, however many years you want to um, take it easy, be an associate, learn from other people. Maybe you have more time now to increase your clinical skills through continuing education or whatever it may be. And then whenever you're ready to, to start your own practice, knowing that um, you know, you fully understand how a practice uh, runs. You have a lot of the clinical skills that you need where you don't need to keep referring or bring associates who do know how to do these certain procedures. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't think there's a huge rush. I know some people are eager. eager and um, if you have enough, if, if you shadow like 100 places, you have enough mentors and you feel ready to open straight out of uh, dental school, then, then go ahead. I think that's a great idea. But for me, I think it's I think it's more important to, to take it easy, uh, go around, see how different uh, dental clinics run, and then shape what I want around that. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Roshani, all of his clinics were acquisitions, right? He didn't do any startups himself. I believe so. so I believe yeah. so. I mean, that's been the theme with almost everybody we've ever had at Debbie. I've, very few people have really been proponents of the starting from scratch model. Yeah, I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm like, what's the motivation behind the people who do do it? Um, like what, what opportunity do they see at the end of it? Cause it seems like a lot of work obviously, and maybe some level of risk associated with it too, when acquisition is a easier option. So that's been the general theme amongst everyone though. They're not explicitly saying like, yeah, buy, but everyone's kind of highlighting the benefits of buying an existing practice and contrasting them to the cons of starting a practice. 
right? Rather than talking about the benefits of starting a practice, which I find pretty interesting. So it's, it's kind of like, it's almost a perception within the community of being like, yeah, listen, um, it's hard. <laughs> there, there's a lot of uh, competition, especially in urban centers, right? So you would take on a risk to start something from scratch. That being said, do a couple of quick Google searches, right? And Stats Canada um, has statistics on business loans, okay? Mm -hmm. And specific dental practice business loans have a profitability rate of like 96%. So there's a reason why financial institutions, there's a reason why there's a bunch of supporting financial institutions that assist new graduates or, uh, you know, owners or new owners or whatever, they, they give them startup practice loans and um, cash flow for the initial couple of months, right? Because on paper, dental practices, no matter what you do, as long as you work, right, are kind of profitable. Because I think dentistry is a very unique profession in that, you know, you don't have to really work that hard to acquire customers. Because if you're in a location, right, patients are going to have dental issues. So you're going to have a few people come through your door just naturally, organically, you know what I mean? And then you're, I think the biggest issue with starting from scratch is waiting for that organic growth to kind of exponentially go, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, Because I mean, and we even just went through this lecture in patient admin, right? Like we, we uh, you can't specifically advertise that your services are better than another person's services or whatever, right? So like marketing and dentistry is a hard, hard thing to do. Right. You kind of have to find unique ways around it. But um, yeah, I think that's the biggest sort of downside is just you're starting with very, very small amounts of cash flow at the beginning and kind of building up. And it's all going to be dependent on you. But no one has explicitly said not to do it. Yes. Right. I think that is true. I think this is one of the things where it's just, it just, it just depends on you what you want to do. Do you want to take over a completely like already successful practice and continue what they're doing? Or do you want to start your own thing and, and like make it your baby? You know, like, you can design it your own way. You can choose the location. I mean, you can choose the location when you buy something, but you can, you can, everything you do is, is, is going to be organic. It's going to be uh, what you decide. And that's like attractive to a lot of people. You know what I mean? Um, it's also like Absolutely. a product. It, it, it completely depends what you want to do. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a little bit more risk when you're starting your own practice, but it's also, um, yeah, there, there is pros and cons. It does seem like more, more people are like, you would just buy a, a practice but at the same time, it just depends who you are. It's, it's a lot more work. So I wonder if there's other factors as well. Like I, I would imagine that buying a practice that you're acquiring versus starting a new one, um, the acquired one would actually cost more because you're paying for the patient base and all that stuff too, on top of the equipment and location and everything. But at the same time, I can imagine that maybe banks give loans easier if you're acquiring because there's a proven track record of income at an acquired one. So these things kind of balance out in their own way. But I did have one uh, one kind of article that I read that I want to share with you guys that kind of relates to this. So basically, the article was kind of about Canada and its current population situation. And they were saying that, especially with COVID, uh, population and growth in Canada has slowed a lot. And overall, like it's known Canada has a really tiny population for just where it's at, like stage in society and for the amount of you know economic potential it has. And um, they want to grow it more. So I, I've seen um, articles saying that they're trying to pump up the immigration numbers post-COVID to try and bring more people in. Um, how feasible that will be post-COVID when uh, the, whatever the economy is going to be like, I don't know. But whenever it does come in, which I think eventually it will start kicking in, um, the combination of more people flowing in combined with the living costs that are like obviously huge in Toronto, Vancouver, all the main urban centers. I feel like that's gonna drive a lot of people to the places that we currently call rural and make them not so rural anymore. 
Um, so then maybe like, you know, going and investing in a rural location now, if anything, as a long-term plan can become uh, something that will really, really pay off because you're kind of like the pioneer who's kind of setting things up there. So um, that's also something to consider. I just wanted to bring that up. See you guys' thoughts on that was. That's a, that's a cool point actually. And, and just to kind of add to that too, Nima, um, so on top of those articles of pop, Canada's population growth and the expectance and stuff like that, do you guys know that in Canada, uh, the career outlook for dentists is very good, right? Because, because there's a lot of uh, boomer generation dentists that are on the brink of retirement, right? And yeah, they're working later. They're working later. Yeah, they're working past 65. They're working into their 70s and stuff like that, right? But eventually, right, they're going to step away and going to start to retire. And it just so happens that the majority of dentists are in that older generation, like someone like the 55 to 65 age bracket or whatever. There's a lot of dentists in Canada that are in that age bracket. And because of that, Stats Canada is actually predicting a uh, dentist shortage. So there's not enough dentists that are projected to be by 2028 or something like that, which is kind of crazy. Right? Yeah, you know how long? That might be true, but not in Toronto. Not in Toronto. It'll probably even out in Toronto. So that's what I was going to bring up. I'm like, uh, coupled with the immigration stat that Nima is talking about, right? And then just these kind of baseline population demographics, right? What's going to happen with dentistry? Like, what, what are your guys' thoughts? Like, I genuinely, I think Nima's onto something too about the rural, right? Being expanding. Because, I mean, I actually was just, a, this was a funny article. It's a bit off topic, but I saw a shed in Toronto, a shed, like I'm not even joking. It's like a one car garage shed in Toronto that sold for $750,000. Okay. That's crazy. Right. So, so the housing situation is cre- like it, just insane. And the housing situation is going to dictate the population movement. Right. So I think, I think, I think uh, for sure that rural and like y- y- you're, you're definitely seeing expansion of the population into different areas within Canada, for sure. Like you have Sudbury in Ontario, shout out to Sudbury, but you know, it's not a city that people normally think that they're going to go live in. Right. But you see a lot of people moving there now, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, what's your guys' opinion? Like, do, do you honestly, so do you see um, from just like from word of mouth or whatever, like what are you guys thinking about the the current job state of dentistry? I have a question to you about the thing you mentioned. Did they mm-hmm. mention in that article how long this for- shortage is forecasted to last for? Yeah, let me pull it up actually. I think I think it's uh, by 2028. Because the reason I'm saying it is, um, I actually noticed this the other day, I was talking with Nima about it, but um I realized just by looking at the numbers of the of dentists in Canada and the number of dental students and number of graduating students, the, the total number of working dentists totally doesn't make sense with the current school sizes. There's clearly been a huge increase in the number of people getting accepted into dental schools. And I feel like that's going to feed into a big increase into the number of um, um, dentists overall. Um, because we have something like 20,000, 24,000 uh, dentists, something like that in Canada and 2,000 students, but 500 are graduating every year. But if you just think about it more in the long term, 500 per year as that like compounds and grows um, and the career span of dentists, it usually can go up above 20,000. So I feel like that's, they're, they're kind of planning for that in advance. I, I, I mean, to compensate 100%. for it with the student populations. You also have to take into account like things like the Atlantic Bridge. So we also have uh some dentists that are being trained in places like Ireland and Australia um, and the United States who their degrees are recognized here too. And and I know that there's been an influx of them coming in as well. So that's also interesting to see how that's going to play out. For sure. Yeah. 
So I just pulled yeah. up the stat here. So the, for for Dennis on uh, jobbank.gc.ca, uh, the market report shortage. This occupational group is expected to face labor shortage conditions over the period of 2019 to 2028 at the national level. So it doesn't give projections on how long it's going to last. But I just found that interesting because everyone's kind of like doom and gloom about dentistry. Like everyone's thinking, oh, it's too saturated in urban centers, right? But maybe it's just too saturated where we're looking. We just got to look somewhere else, like rural. (laughs) And again, about rural dentistry, I think what COVID kind of showed us and magnified what the society was capable of is that because of the help of technology like Zoom, you know, people would probably be more uh, willing to go to, you know, rural areas with lower cost of living and still have a good job and just do their job off, you know, online. So I wouldn't be surprised if the population in the next few years uh, would move more you know, to rural areas, and which is, again, a, a good thing for for the future of dentistry, I guess. I think like we're, we're kind of seeing that now already like in London, but another thing I remember from the podcast and a, kind of an inkling into this uh, whole practice ownership uh, debate was uh, the emergence of DSOs. Uh, I remember on the actual podcast, like I had like an aha moment when, when Roshani like flat out said, yeah, if, I'm, if I was gonna buy a practice today, I would 100% go DSO, just because it's so much more convenient. And I think, the thing that kind of turns people off maybe about practice ownership or the potential of it is the, 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 like the time contribution. It's just so much time that you have to organize everything. And if you can get maybe a DSO to, to subsidize that or like you know, take over majority of the administration, it just makes it a very, very uh, feasible option. Because one of the things about dentistry, kind of like we said, is like the flexibility of it. And if you do kind of go all in on a practice, like a lot of your time, is taken away. I remember Dr. Mon on our very, very first seminar, he's like, I can't go on a vacation without having to deal with something back at the practice, right? So I think the emergence of DSOs like in the next five, 10 years, that I think that'll play a pretty uh, critical, critical role in the next wave of dentists deciding if they wanna be practice owners or not. Yeah, for sure. I do remember that now, actually. I, that, that did, I same boat here, Bob. I was kind of like, oh yeah, that's actually a really good point, right? Like Roshani was basically explaining that the administrative side of practice ownership can be quite tedious. And if you're starting from scratch and you have the option to, you know, um, buy in through a DSO, through a partnership where you're still maintaining clinical ownership, but they're helping out with the administrative tasks. It was kind of surprising to see someone like Dr. Roshani kind of say, yeah, like, listen, like it's smart to kind of go down this route. (laughs) <laughs> you don't know anything and they know a lot, right? So why not? Okay, let's segue into Dr. Omid Azami. I, I was really excited to have this guy on because, you know, he's the newbie dentist. Um, it's a cool podcast. I've listened to it quite a bit um, when I got into dental school. And it was just, it was kind of, it was fun having a, a, a mini star basically join us and uh, share his opinions. But I wanted to touch on this because he he's a person that kind of fits the characteristics of what Jerry mentioned of uh, being, you know, uh, considering these schools that are abroad because Dr. Uh, Azami actually had his education done in Australia and on top of practice ownership, like he's, he's learning, like his philosophy is to like, okay, be patient about it. Let me learn the profession. Let me see what I'm doing. And he's just now starting to kind of look into, you know, settling down in private practice and go down this way. So what's your guys' opinion on, you know, education abroad in general i think it's really cool um it's interesting because you're putting yourself in a new place and uh 
I'm sure every single country and every single region does it differently. I've, I've heard, I, I'm honestly not that, that uh, informed on this. I just kind of heard through conversation, but you know, um, apparently in Europe and places, the focus of practice is on different things. Like in one place, it might be more preventative in other place. It might be more on surgeries or something like that. I think actually it was Nima L who was telling me about this and the difference there. I might be wrong about that, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's a different perspective. And then when you learn those things somewhere else, the fact that a lot of these countries let you move between them, like I'm pretty sure between Australia and Canada, you can practice. Um, you get to kind of bring these different principles to different places and try them out and combine them. And I think that's really valuable for sure. Yeah, what actually surprised me, and I didn't know this, but Dr. Azami, he he kind of explained that dentistry is different in Australia. Hygiene, hygienists aren't really a thing. I was literally um, Right. Like that. Wasn't that kind of shocking? So, so it's very common for dentists just to do the hygiene in Australia, whereas here in Canada and the U S and I'm not sure what it's like in US, uh, in Ireland or New Zealand. I don't know if anyone knows about that and can touch on it, but right. It, it's kind of almost like a shock because uh, Dr. Zami said that he came back to work in Canada for, I think a year or a year and a half. Um, and he just worked around different practices and he hustled. He did the the new grad hustle, right? And he worked at different associateships and things like that. But ultimately, like his big point was that the difference between the, the two countries in practice was very different. So, you know, where I'm trying to get at with this is if you're someone that's kind of adventurous and wants to say, spend a year in Australia, that seems like a cool idea. And it's cool that you can be a dentist, but I, I just think that, you know, you really have to consider the fact that the practice of dentistry might actually be quite different between the two countries, which uh, I, I didn't know. And I thought was interesting. Uh, a very quick point about that, but about if someone is adventurous is that again, I don't have the exact numbers on this, but uh, I've had a few colleagues who were graduates of uh, countries outside of Canada and one thing that I noticed from talking to them was that when you graduate from a Canadian or, uh, or from a U.S. dental school and you end up going to uh, some of the more, more wealthier uh, countries like in Middle East, like UAE or Qatar, or when you go to like, for example, Singapore, because you are a graduate of a North American dental school, and it is probably something for anyone who is interested to look look into, your income is substantially higher. Again, I don't really have the exact numbers on this, but it was something interesting. Like it kind of, uh, you know, tickled me to think that oh, maybe for a few years after dental school, maybe I don't want to experience the harsh winter in Canada, and I want want to go to Singapore or somewhere like that. That's that's that actually nice. one of the coolest ideas. Um, in dentistry, right? Like, I don't think people really consider the fact that you can pretty much, especially if you're a graduate from Canada, US, of course, like graduates from Australia and Ireland, right? They have reciprocity agreements with Canada uh, and whatnot. But, you know, specifically in our situation, we can pretty much go anywhere in the world if we really wanted to, right? And it, it, it's not it's not an uphill battle. It's different than, you know, having your education done in Singapore and trying to come to North America. You know, we're from North America trying to come to Singapore. And that's that's kind of cool. It, it, it opens up your sort of uh, options. Yeah, back to the, the doing your own hygiene in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard, I heard um, in Canada, when you start your own practice, um, you don't have enough money to hire a hygienist or to, to fill that um, void in your office. So a lot of dentists, when they open their own practice, they honestly do their own hygiene. 
So it's, it's, a, it's a good skill to, to, to be an expert in, especially if you're a dentist starting your own practice and um, you don't have money to, own, uh, to, to hire your own hygienist. Uh, also, there's differences in Australia here in terms of uh, dental insurance. Um, apparently, it's a lot better in Australia because they don't really deal with dental insurance as much. And then they, they just pay you money uh, straight up. So um, that, that was one thing that I found interesting as well. And then can you guys touch on this? If you have any like personal experience or like personal connections with people who did this, how easy it is, how easy is it to, you know, transition from getting an education in Australia or New Zealand and Ireland and coming back to Canada, right? Because I've had a number of conversations with people about this and it seems pretty straightforward. I'm pretty sure even Noel Mitazami, like he said that, you know, in Australia, I don't even think... It, Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to like just say facts without you know, having them validated. But I'm pretty sure he uh, explained that you know you don't really need to pass any sort of board exams to start working in Australia, and so you can kind of get started right away. And then all he had to do with, to come back to Canada was go through the um, the Canadian board licensing. Did anyone expand on that? Does anyone have any anecdotes? Um, I I know that I was looking at going to Ireland. Um, when I was applying to dental schools. And what I thought was interesting is that they even like schedule out time for you to write the Canadian boards and like set it up for you uh, in, in, your, in your schedule if you're Canadian. So I think that they make it uh, very easy for their international students to go back because they know that that's, what, that that's what a lot of them are looking to do. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, um hearing a lot too is that these schools actually kind of you know make an effort to help you out too which is which is kind of neat so if anyone's considering you know going abroad for dentistry and whatnot yeah like it's a it's a thing there's a reciprocity agreements and it the only downside to it is that you're moving countries but for the most part you can really transition into your role as a dentist here and it's a lot different i don't know if anyone's coming in from a perspective of like medicine or whatnot right it's very different than uh than medicine in dentistry, right? Because you don't need to go through residencies. You don't need to go through uh, governing uh, licensing bodies uh, that require residencies, right? You can kind of just work in dentistry right after graduation, uh, which is really neat. The one thing that I have been seeing just from my hours down the rabbit hole online is that you um, might be hindered in specialties. So a lot of a lot of specialty programs, especially in the United States, I haven't had that much info on Canada. But if you have an education that is abroad, um, some dental specialties will specifically say that you need to be a graduate of a Canadian or U.S. accredited dental school. So those are some of the only limitations that I could really see or kind of figure out as of right now. But other than that, if you want to be a general dentist, going abroad, great option. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great option. And also, you never know, you might go abroad and decided that, oh, I like it here. Maybe I want to stay in Ireland or Australia. So you never know. Omid Azami, like, he's from Canada. He he actually did his undergrad, if I'm not wrong, in kinesiology at Western. Yep. He moved to Australia and he loves it. So you never know. You just got to take the chance, go out there and explore, and you might end up staying there. Yeah, definitely. This is like a privilege that uh we definitely should be aware of that we have that opportunity because I, I think this is something that's a little bit more exclusive to north american students and schools and stuff and uh if it's opportunity available it's kind of smart to take it i guess you know even if it's temporarily you can go try something out get some life experience i think the biggest challenge of going to another country to practice dentistry would just be the challenge of just moving to another country whatever that is to you um but it's definitely a great opportunity that we have 
should be taken. I was going to say it's 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 interesting because I think if you graduate from Ireland, um, I'm not sure of the political climate now and Brexit and things like that, but you can practice anywhere in Europe, um, which is pretty cool because uh, it's it's actually kind of difficult to go to certain countries in Europe and practice mm-hmm. there from, from North America. So that's something to consider if, if you know you want to live in Europe for some reason. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, going to these schools in the in the EU, I mean, you can live and work in the EU, EU if that's always been your dream, right? Like that's uh, that's pretty sweet, especially if you want to settle down somewhere like the UK, NHS, right? Great employment. <laughs> uh, just a point. Maybe it's a different topic, but it, again, it goes back to our episode with Dr. Azami. Uh, listening to that episode and about his experiences kind of reminded me of my other conversations with other general entrepreneurs is that if you're a dentist, uh, the flexibility that it offers, it, it means that you don't necessarily need to have your own clinic necessarily. You could be an associate, but have side hustle on the side. Like Dr. Azami, he has CPD junkie, or like I've had conversation with other dental associates here in Canada who are running, you know, bunch of startups on the side. Again, I think dentistry, it's very unique in, in the sense that it allows you to venture into different areas if you're interested in them. And uh, it kind of allows, it kind of provides you with some sort of like a financial backing to actually venture in those areas with less anxiety, I guess. For sure, for sure. Yeah, lots of opportunities with your degree. So if you want to take advantage of it, just just go for it. Okay, let's talk about Sina Amiri. This was honestly a super, super insightful episode. I don't know if the information got across in the recording um, because we did qu- talk quite a bit with Sina and we had a lot of really, really good insight towards DSOs, working in DSOs, um, kind of the pros and cons. So does anyone want to start off on that? Any kind of burning opinions? I think uh, one of the cool things about Zina was that he made me really want to be self-reflective and ask myself what my own limitations and what my own strengths are, because um, there are a lot of benefits and a lot of cons for both of these things, but it, it really is dependent on who you are as a person. I think sometimes we forget to stop and ask ourselves um, not only who we are, but what we want in the future and if that's feasible or not. Um, so, th- so I thought that was something that was cool because often we're, you know, reading articles and getting a lot of other people's opinions and we forgot, we forget to stop and ask ourselves questions. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I had a very similar experience. I was, I remember I was driving to Toronto from London to visit my family and I was listening to that episode and literally I had to stop it when he, he was talking about, uh, you know, considering our own strengths and weaknesses and where our talents or could fit better and literally I had to stop it and just think about a few for a few moments it was it was quite uh interesting to think about that and a few days after that I was actually talking to Nima and and I was talking to him about like what I like to do what I'm seeing myself uh you know for the future and boy it was definitely something that went beyond dentistry that episode and it talked a lot about uh, our personal skills, where we can fit better and how we can optimize our talents. Basically. I have a question for you guys, though. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this myself. Um, 
Do you guys know how much DSOs affect the um, policy and operations of a dental clinic? Like, I know the dentist still has ownership, but how much do they dictate what kind of procedures should you be doing more and less of? What kind of equipment? What kind of materials to be used? Do you guys know that? I think uh, it could be case by case. Uh, even let's say one DSO, DSO X, I don't want to name one. Uh, they could have different policies uh, for different dental practices. Uh, one thing I know, it's they're more hands-off when it comes to clinical side of stuff. And that's the whole thing about DSOs uh, because they're not technically dentist-led. They're not really allowed to get involved with the clinical side of things. However, I've heard of DSOs that have agreements with certain uh, dental material suppliers one, one of them actually happened re quite recently in Canada. Uh, Dental Core basically partnered up with Patterson, I think. No, sorry, Henry Schein. And now, Henry Schein, yeah. Henry Schein, now everything that they buy is probably coming from Henry Schein. So maybe in that way, they can have some control when it comes to the dental material that they get to use. But again, if it's a good material, I don't think it's going to affect the clinical aspects of things that significantly. What do you guys think? So I can actually expand on that. That does from the Cena episode um, specifically, he touched on, you know, the operations of DSOs. And the important thing to understand with DSOs is they crumble without a structure. Right. So you the, the types of day to day operations in a DSO need to be almost kind of like in a system that nothing like there's of course some level of surprise that happens in dentistry all the time right like patients every patient's different whatever but in general right they have systems that you need to follow if you're part of a dso uh, or else they're just not going to be able to kind of work with you right so in the same sense like yes you have clinical autonomy right but these kind of partnerships with henry shine uh for for example dental corp right like i would assume like they would influence the types of materials you use of course right obviously if the supplier is dictated by the dso then yeah you're gonna have to choose specific materials to use right but at the same time i would be very much interested to learn more about the specific systems that dso's require their clinics to run under um, because that's what I've been told. And I think that's where people sort of find an issue with employment with DSOs, right? That the whole kind of negative connotation with uh, every working dentist and DSOs is that they don't really let you have any freedom, which I, like, I've heard mixed opinions on. I've heard that people have clinical autonomy, um, but I've also heard that people say that the DSOs have requirements that they need to meet, meet as a clinician, for example, and they don't incentivize it directly. But for example, you have bonuses and stuff like that, that drive your incentive to do that kind of stuff. So whether you're going to do the most like uh, proper clinical dentistry working under DSO, that, that's up to you. But I, from what I understand, that's where people butt heads. From what I've uh, heard and, and talked to people uh, in the, uh, in the States, pretty much like the the last point that you hit is like bang on people who actually have worked in DSOs for a little bit and then maybe went uh, ventured out. What they found was like, they have like these monthly requirements to kind of hit. And if you're patient based, that's coming in, that just doesn't require that. That's where it gets a little bit murky in terms of like, Oh, like, do I do this? Do I not? And I think that comes down more to the dentist than it would to the, uh, to the actual T 
TSO because like it, it's your license. Like at the end of the day, it's all on you. But I think that could be one thing that might turn a, a few people off the DSO uh, bandwagon. But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that DSOs are, they're trying to distance themselves from that kind of mindset too. So I don't know how it's going to be like in the future, but I know that they know that it's an issue, right? Mm -hmm. So, and for them, DSOs don't function without the clinicians. They need to keep their clinicians happy, right? And that's like one of the main topics for DSO discussions. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason I brought this up in the first place, is I, I'm not anti-DSO, right? I don't think it's a bad thing, but at the same time, I do know that a lot of corporations um, in general, um, they they operate off of things like financial models and optimizing those financial models and stuff like that, which makes sense to some level. Um, but as Bob said, you know, those finance, like no one financial model, especially for something like healthcare works the same way in every single different location because everyone has its own demographics, its own needs and all that. And, you know, when, when you're saying some people say they get along with DSOs and it's fine and some people, I, I think everything is fine until you hit one of those kind of situations. And then it's kind of, it kind of boils down to how the DSO uh, works with you, right? When I, when, if I go to a DSO and I tell them, hey, like your model, what you're expecting me to do on a monthly basis doesn't meet the needs of my patient base. Will the DSO work with me or not? And then the question becomes, once it also gets to that case, um, if I'm proposing that their model doesn't work, I would assume that the, the good way to enter that sort of negotiation or that conversation is to um, understand these concepts yourself and also have a better counter proposition yourself, right? So I, 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 I'm just bringing this point up to say that it's not, I don't think it's wise to just say that DSO's got a lot of stuff covered for you and to kind of stray away from those things. Because um, at the end of the day, uh, to my knowledge, uh, DSOs aren't necessarily run by clinicians. Of course, there's clinicians back there, but the clinician's voice and the clinician's opinion obviously matters. And the more you know, and the more you can talk with them in their own language too, the more you can get the best out of the DSO and the best patients you can get out of it too. So yeah. we're kind of getting to an hour's mark here. I wanted to touch on one more point about DSOs. Um, because we are, you know, Debbie, we're business focused, entrepreneur focused, whatnot. And as dental students, right, you don't really get a lot of business exposure and whatnot in dental school, which is fine. That's that's the typical thing. And that's what we're trying to do with Debbie, right? Just trying to learn more ourselves. What really stuck with me with uh, that Cena said was that DSOs really, 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 really want a clinician that is also business inclined, okay? Sina said that he took on an intern from dental school, like he, a dental student reached out to him when he was a vice president of DSO or whatever, um, and just asked, hey, I'm interested in learning more about the business side of dentistry. And Sina's like, oh, that's great. And he took him under his wing, right? Which was super, super exciting. Like, think about that. Think about the potential. You can see a like 100 practice DSO and you can see the top level operations of it right? And learn from that. That's super valuable. And so I think that goes to kind of say that, you know, take the risk and reach out. You never know. You never know, right? Um, and if, if you can land a position like that over the summer, if you guys have summer, I know the state schools kind of go through the summer, but even just like part-time internships or something like that, that, that seems like an incredible experience. What are you guys' opinions on that? Well, if you, if you it, it, like, it depends what your perspective is, what you want to do. You can work in a DSO and have zero involvement in admin, zero involvement in the business, or you can reach out to them and get involved. 
And, and that's one thing I asked, you know, like, is it, is it, have you ever heard of someone going from a DSO structure to private practice? It's like, yeah, it's very possible. You can learn a lot of valuable things from a DSO and then it's very easy to transition or, um, or, or it's not like the DSO creates any barriers for you. So that's one thing that I found very interesting about, about our talk with Sina is that it's, it's not like you have to commit to one thing or the other. It's very easy to transition uh, between each other if you, if you really wanted to uh, switch from private practice to DSO or vice versa. Do DSOs make you not compete against yourself? It depends. Um, sometimes, yes. Sometimes they'll make you sign contracts saying that you can't work in the specific vicinity of the practice you work at. That's every private practice, though, or most. <laughs> That's one of the things that the contract lawyers will tell you. Um, 100% yeah, make imagine. sure there's no exclusion clause in your associateship contract. I think we can touch on that in the later episode if we get like an, a lawyer in. I think that'd be a good discussion to get. They but do, there they are do a lot private practice as well. It's not just a DSO. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, but it's like, different. It's different here because you're you're when you're owning a private practice and you bring on an associate, you're just making sure that they don't compete against you. But in the DSO model, they're making sure that you don't compete against you. You know what I mean? Because wherever you are, you can't be there anymore once you leave the DSO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's kind it, of a different situation. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a really interesting, I think that that would be an awesome conversation to have. Uh, I'm sure Debbie can kind of explore uh, those areas as well, but yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a big, that's a big no, no. <laughs> this has been the business of drilling. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already go check out debbieacademy.ca. find us on Facebook, Debbie Academy and on Instagram, Debbie.academy. That's D E B I dot Academy. I'm not going to spell it out. Check us out. If you're interested in the conversations that you're having, join our groups. We have these kind of talks. We, we want to learn as well. And if you have any feedback, reach out to us. We, we love to hear any sort of questions, concerns, or even suggestions that anyone has. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.